Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to do a writer's table. This is episode 30, and I'm saying this for myself, because later on when I'm editing this recording, and I'll forget what number it is, I'll have said it, and that will be helpful. Um, Even though I do make notes, it, it doesn't. I mean, the last one we did was episode 28, 29, and 30 through the course of my editing process. But it is, it was, you know, it was 30, 29, 28, whatever. This is 30. <laughs> I have spoken. <laughs> it, it's, it's something. Um. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, our first question is uh, from Chris King. Hello, Chris King. Welcome to Hello, our Chris. Welcome to our podcast. How's the thunder from down under? <laughs> this could be one of those nights. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, man. This is this is episode thirty. You were right. Yeah. Okay. Well, twenty nine was the one where you told me that you were talking to yourself, so we had to do a podcast. So yes, <laughs> yeah, it was it was sad. <clears throat> Okay, so the first question is from Chris King, and it's called, and um, she asked, what is a zero draft? A zero draft is um, a plot document, basically, um, as far as, like, fiction is concerned. Uh, For me, my zero draft is a mixture of plot points, events, uh, characterization, um, GMC. I put it all together. Um, Remember that first draft you read of No Enemy Within? From Lantian Legacy. That was a half-assed zero draft. <laughs> yeah. There there are a lot of there are a lot of approaches to a zero draft. There's um but this, some people write like all the dialogue out. Um they don't really fill in any of the blanks. It's just um and, and there's some writers who never get beyond that. They just basically publish their zero draft. But I wouldn't consider it a 95% dialogue story to be anything but a zero draft. Um, but, and then some people, um, actually write like a formal outline and, and if it's big enough, that would be constitute a zero draft. Um, and then what Kira does, the first time I read Kira's plot document, I mean, she didn't just have like, these are the things that need to happen in the story. It was also character motivations and she had so much built in to explain where the story was going. I was like, well, use zero draft. Um, it's just a different way to do it. So there's a lot of approaches to a zero draft, but it's more than just, it's not as much as a rough draft because a rough draft is, you know, a rough outline of a, a, a rough sketch at your entire story. Um, whereas the zero draft is sort of pre rough draft. It's the template that you create the rough draft from. Here, let me give you, um, I have, I've heard this before, so I don't mind sharing it again. Um, I'm going to take a picture of, or t- take a clip of the zero draft the, the, the first page of the zero draft for Unleash Your Demons. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that while you're... Um, but for me, I do like to mix in my my GMC, um, all my plot events, um, and um, talk about the consequences of these plot events because that helps me thread a story so that I have a theme that I can pull. I um, mean, that's especially important when you're working with something big like Sentinels of Atlantis or... Um, uh, ties that bind is huge. I mean, it, it is really difficult to manage an AU of that size without taking notes, without zero drafting, without knowing where I'm going. Um, one of the reasons why it was so easy to rewrite Sentinels of Atlantis is was I did still have my zero draft. Um, so that was really helpful, 
having that zero draft on paper when my hard drive died. So I, I at least had that. Um, but it allowed me to plant seeds in the first couple of episodes that didn't see um, results until the, the search, which was the last episode of season one, which will, which allowed me to tell a really big story with a series of small stories. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, so the next one that might be easy to, oh boy, I'm in the wrong channel. Um, so I'll delete that one. And then, uh, Kedra asks, how do you determine the, your villains in your story? Um, I would preface the answer with saying you don't necessarily need a villain. Um, and you may not even need an antagonist. If you've got something novel length, you, I think you're going to have a hard time carrying something that's 40k plus without an antagonist or two. Um, but when you've got something short, the shorter it is, the less likely you are to even need an antagonist. You know, if you, you might have an antagonist or something 2K, but it certainly isn't necessary. Um, and the reason why I make a distinction between villain and antagonist is because an antagonist can be a, a very important um, counterpoint to your protagonist. They build, help bring in the external conflict, which leads to the character's motivation um, and their own internal conflict. But a villain is a really separate type of antagonist. And you might have multiple antagonists and a villain. So a villain is somebody who is, well, villainous. They do bad things. Um, and often villains, I think, wind up more two-dimensional um, when they're written than... Um, then uh, an, an antagonist often are wind up being. Sometimes the antagonist is even an anti-hero. It depends upon what kind of story you're writing. But a villain um, often is their motivations are kind of murky uh, and in terms of why they do what they do. Uh, sometimes it's just ego or power. Um, and some people, that is why they do what they do. Ego, power, narcissism. Um, but sometimes that can come off a little bit shallow. So I would say, like in Ties That Bind, um, like uh, Sam was an antagonist, but Kevin Jordan was a villain, is the way I, I read the story. Yeah. But Sam's character was... People think that I don't like Sam Carter because of my portrayal of her in um, Ties That Bind, even though I said explicitly in my notes that it wasn't about bashing her character explicitly, is that I wanted to create that circumstance for Rodney to explore that kind of um, recovery. Um, and there was no other character really in the canon that fit that could have pulled that off, that could have had that kind of um, commanding presence in Rodney's life. Uh, I didn't want to write an original character for it because I felt like it had more power coming from a canon character. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of times, especially There's, in fan fiction, canon characters are often more nuanced um, than than original characters when written as the antagonist or the villain. So it can be, uh, which is why characters like Sam or Gibbs or, you know, who sometimes do really shady shit in canon can make a really good nuanced antagonist. I think sometimes it's tempting to write a villain as crazy so you don't have to explain their motivations and their goals. Um, but that kind of portrayal of a villain is really shallow and it can become deeply uninteresting across a large work. Because the thing about Kevin Jordan is, is that he's not crazy. He's not even evil. 
he is, I'd say he's a sociopath. I would also say that he's a narcissist and that kind of, um, well, narcissism includes that kind of entitlement. Uh, he is his version, um, his world's version of a sexist. Uh, he, he has a, he has an intricate system of beliefs that he would, um, because of how he was raised in a household where submissives were kept as slaves. Um, and he believes that the world owes him a living. And it owes him submissives too. And a blowjob. Yeah. 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 Um, Jordan was going after Rodney on his own dime, really. That was the way I read it. I mean, other people might have had some agenda there, but I felt like Jordan just coveted Rodney and he was going to have him no matter what the cost was. Jordan did covet Rodney and not because of Rodney, but because Rodney was a status symbol. Yeah. And that's all it was. What Rodney wanted, what he, who he was, his talents, his intelligence, none of that mattered. The only thing that mattered was that, um, that was that Rodney was the North Star. And that's a pretty coveted position to be in. Because he's the North Star of the de facto Marquis de Sade. And that is, you know, in, in the world of ties that bind, that's, that's the ultimate especially for a sadist so you know it's so so it wasn't about rodney now i can't say that there weren't other characters in and moving around in that situation who weren't manipulating people like kevin jordan like the people at um Desaad in order to control Rodney, but it wasn't the same thing. And the thing is, is even if he had managed to get Rodney back on earth, he wouldn't have gotten Rodney because those people would have interfered. Sam is the reason that Kevin Jordan pursued Rodney. He knew that Rodney was a courtesan and she basically manipulated Kevin Jordan into seeing Rodney as something to be coveted because she was vicious and vengeful. But it wasn't political. Because if it wasn't clear, Sam Carter and Ties at Vine would rather Rodney be dead than not be with her. And she saw Kevin Jordan as a method by which that, that Rodney could die. I also, I also read into this Sam sort of deeply envied Rodney yeah. or jealous jealousy there maybe jealousy can be very toxic very toxic um the thing is is I don't really like to write the classic villain um Sam Carter is 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 damaged and flawed and um within the standards of ties at bond she's mentally ill but she's not evil so that classic villain stereotype doesn't work for me isn't something that I strive to do. And so like the way most of us perceive Harry Potter, not all of us, but the way most of us perceive it, Voldemort's the villain and Dumbledore's an antagonist. Although some people would view Dumbledore also outright as um, a villain. It kind of depends on your perspective. So sometimes the line is thin and sometimes the line is not thin, but regardless of like to the question of how do you pick who it's going to be? I think it is important that in your own head, you know, if you're writing an antagonistic perspective or if you're writing a villainous perspective, but it isn't necessary um, to like spell it out 
and because the reader's going to get out of it what they get out of it. But if you as the author know what you're doing, most people will get it. But anyway, um, I think the first step to picking who it's going to be is what serves the story you want to tell. Because um, sometimes there's a really obvious answer. <laughs> there's a really obvious answer to that question. It's like, um, who would who is who is going to get provide external conflict for the, your the for the character that you your main character for your protagonist in the journey that you're taking them on? Um, well, that's true. That's true. But I mean, <laughs> it is true that sometimes the author doesn't get it when they're when they're writing it. I get that. But um, certainly, the goal is never to model what people have done badly. <laughs> um, it's not my goal. I mean, I think some people um, see the success of of an author and emulate them, thinking they can emulate that success um, for for good or bad. I mean, how many assholes went around writing books that had no um, capitalization? <laughs> we don't discuss that because I can't control myself, and I'll I'll have to edit myself. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, when you're picking a story that's going to have, sometimes um, the antagonist in the story is sort of almost like, well, like in a story where you've got, um, like, let's say you're writing a natural disaster story. Um, like, I think many, many of us have seen The Day After Tomorrow. And if you haven't, I don't know why not. But anyway. Right. Um, the antagonist in that story is really the weather. Yes, there are other people that provide some obstacles here and there, but the main antagonist is the weather. It's it's this 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 you know this uh, po this uh, climate shift that's happened because of global warming. So, um, so sometimes an antagonist is not necessarily a character. Uh, although I do think that the, that storm was its own character in the in the movie. Um, doesn't that kind of go back to that whole the, those whole themes like man versus nature? Yeah, and man, yeah. and what are what are the others like? There's the romance, and um, it, it all comes down to that. Cause like, like if, if you ever watched um, what is that movie? He's in the wilderness, and the bear is trying to kill him. He's um, he crashes on a plane, and there's a bear. No, 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 no. This is modern. I haven't watched that that movie. Um, it's got uh, that's Leo got the Oscar for Revenant, and, and th that's an historical piece. This has this has Anthony Hopkins in it, I think. He's yeah, the edge, the edge. Yeah, that's a man versus nature kind of situation. Um, the one with Liam Neeson and the wolves that we don't know how it ends. <laughs> And in those kinds of situations, your antagonist, and it's, these are anta definitely antagonists, not villains per se, is that the, it is these external things like the animal that's, that's hunted, the bear that was hunting him in the, in the edge, or, um, or the weather. You know, in those kinds of situations, like in the same thing for that one with Tom Hanks on the island. Castaway? Castaway. The circumstances become the antagonist. You know, the, the fact that... So... Look, honestly, in Castaway, I'm pretty sure that Ice Skate is the villain. I'm never getting <laughs> over that. <laughs> Ever. 
Um, any questions, please drop them in to ask a question for the podcast, because sometimes the chat moves so quickly that I can't um, okay, we'll keep lose up. It. With... So it's best to copy and paste into the ask the question page. So. Yes, please. Um, so when you're picking, no, for, first thing about picking your antagonist is what kind of story are you telling? Because you want an antagonist or a villain that serves the kind of story you're telling. So sometimes, like if somebody's telling a romance, right, and, and if you're, and if the story is a hardcore romance, a really big overblown villain might feel very disconnected from a romance. Um, if you're telling a man versus nature kind of story, you're, you've got your antagonist. The mo most of your anta antagonist is built in the situation. But, you know, like in the case of The Day After Tomorrow, there also was a little bit of early on, um, the vice president was kind of sitting in the antagonist role of kind of blocking their efforts to, you know, do the science thing. Um, but then he got over it and the weather was the main thing to overcome. So what kind of story are you telling? Will it kind of inform what kind of antagonist you're going to have to have? Because you don't. It's always, it's always great when one antagonist teaches another antagonist a life lesson. <laughs> it's like, oh, you thought you were a bitch. Let me show you something. <laughs> you think you're in charge? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So if you're writing a zombie apocalypse, the the apocalypse, the zombies are your antagonists for the most part. Now, depending upon the kind of story you're telling in that setting, you might have other minor antagonists, like somebody who's kind of like putting the, you know, your survival efforts at risk because they're, you know, whether they're scared or whatever. Anyway. Um, or selfish. Dick. So, yeah, because they're selfish. I mean, I mean, if you saw that dragon movie, I can't remember what it was called. Um, where the kid sneaks out because they wanted to eat the food they'd been trying to cultivate and kind of brings the dragons down on them. That kind of kid, even though he was being an idiot for at least, you know, he was kind of functioning a little bit as bringing external conflict, external tension into the story. So in that role, he's a little bit like a, a little bit of an antagonist, but yes, rain of fire. Thanks. And, um, so what kind of story do you want to tell? We'll help you pick. Do you want an original character? Do you want to, can you accomplish this effort with a canon character? Um, sometimes people don't want to put one of their canon characters in a bad light, which is fine. In which case you can use an original character. Um, sometimes circumstances, like especially if you're writing like in a law enforcement um, fandom, your circumstances, legal procedure might wind up being what you need to provide the tension. You know, we can't do that because it's against the law to go in there without a search warrant. So it's just really important to know what kind of story you're going to tell. Um, let's try to give a more concrete answer about like where we've picked a villain or an antagonist in a story and how that was done. Okay. So like in my story, duty of the living, um, I actually felt really negatively about, uh, in canon, Scott's stance about we don't kill, we don't kill, we don't kill. Because that basically means, and, re and repeatedly in canon, he let dangerous things go, dangerous people go, like Deucalion and Gerard, to except go and kill and, kill and, yeah, except, well, yeah. It was weird that he thought that Deucalion and Gerard were redeemable, but Peter wasn't, but whatever. Hypocrisy is not my lookout. Um so I felt very strongly about him putting, sending people off to kill in somebody else's backyard so that he could keep his own hands clean. So it was really easy for me and Beauty of the Living to, to put him in the position of the antagonist 
with relatively little work because I felt like that his attitude in that regard of if these witches promise that they'll go away, that, well, I'll believe them and it'll all be all right. I felt like that was realistic for his character. So I didn't feel like I had to even stretch him too far to make that, put him in the role. Um, but also, I think it also highlighted the the depth of of Styles' character um, and Justice. And it's just there's this Scott's character is is really deeply flawed, and that's good. You want a flawed character, but what you don't want is your flawed, deeply fucked up character to win the day. You don't want his point of view to be considered the just one. And that's exactly what happened in Team Wolf Cannon. It's like he, you know he's he, he's Werewolf Jesus, so of course he's he's one hundred percent right all the time. We just had to put up with it because he's Werewolf Jesus, right? Which is gross. They made his black and white morality a virtue, and it really isn't. So, uh, so in that story, when I was planning that story, he was the obvious fit as as the. Um, antagonist but in the kind of minor role of antagonist in that story she wasn't really but um allison plays a kind of it's she's a very subtle antagonist because she knew better and she wasn't really under like some of scott's betas she wasn't really um required to listen to scott she didn't have to do what he said and but she hated derek so badly still that she went along with Scott's plan just basically despite Derek, even though she knew it was the wrong thing. So, and it, I felt like that again, Canon set it up for me to put them in the position of the two most um, responsible for that situation that got those kids killed and got um, nearly killed Noah. So it, it's a really good decision because it makes a lot of sense considering what we know that Scott did to Derek and Canon. And how, I mean, you know, honestly, that, that whole thing where he forced um, Derek to bite Gerard is, is, is just, it's obscene. And I, it's disgusting that he got away with it. Right. And that, that is a mentality we see often is it's okay if this character who's the supposed hero hurts somebody else to protect the person they love. And the, his rationale and the reason he got away with it is, oh, I was protecting my mom. And they position that and you see that actually all the time in, in media is that somebody goes oh well to protect this one person it's okay if I kill 50 or 60 other people because I'm protecting my my family and actually that's pretty fucked up actually um, that like somebody would deliver a bomb or something into a public facility in order to protect their family that's actually super super fucked up and yet it's positioned often in in fiction and in TVs and movies as being a, a virtue of some sort, that they would do anything to protect the ones they love. And I get it. I think most of us feel like we would do anything to protect the ones they love. But I mean, I feel like I have a line, right? For me. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to say I have a line. I, I hope I have a line. I mean, we all hope we have that line, but we don't know what that line is until we get there. Right. But I think it's important when you're creating your character to know that line. Where are they in that on this that spectrum? And 
the way a character is, what will help your character resonate as a reasonable antagonist is how much do you have to twist them to put them in that role? And that what they did in canon, because we've all read that story where we went, I just don't see that character acting that way. It makes no sense. Um, and that's where you've turned the character too far. You've gone too far with this character. Their canon, their canon actions don't support that behavior. Um, and it's really easy, honestly, to get there. Yeah. You can misstep really easily when it comes to that. Especially when you don't like the character to begin with. You can go too far. And we've all seen instances in fic where we, you, the, the writer thought they were writing the so-called smackdown. And it turned into this abusive, disgusting situation that makes you sick. That makes you sick to your stomach. That makes you think, oh my god. The character that you don't even like suddenly has all your sympathy. Like I was reading a story. Um, in fact, Julie and I were both reading a story, and I was ahead of her. And I'm glad that I was. I was significantly ahead of her, actually, in the reading, because I'd started reading it. Um, and then she started reading it independently from me, and then we found out we were both reading it at the same time. But I was, like, I don't know, five, six chapters ahead of her. Yeah. And so I finished it while she was asleep. I tried to finish it while she was asleep. I had to stop. And I wrote her and told her, she, you stop reading don't read any more of this because it, in the, in this particular fandom you expect the level of fucked up but in this particular story the level of fucked up way too fucked up was a hundred percent above canon fuck up and that fandom was hannibal so just think about that for a second <laughs> it was a hundred times worse than canon and I was like, oh my fucking God. And I was like, I just, I, all I could say was, I really hope that she gets on Discord and reads my message before she starts going back over to that, read that damn story. And, but, you know, and the author, I'm sure the author thought she was perfect, that her circumstances were perfectly reasonable. But she turned. She made Will worse than Hannibal. Yes. Canon, Will worse yes. than Canon Hannibal. Yes. And that doesn't even count. I, I think that if, I honestly think that in Canon, Hannibal would have killed Will for what Will did in that fic. Yeah, it was terrible. Just And I just heard about it. I didn't read it. I was like, when she told me, I was like, oh, no, I can't read that. I, I would never get that out of my head. As it is, I can't get it out of my head. I'm glad I didn't read it. I mean, um, you know, it's like, it's, it's like my grandma always said. Look, when you're doing something and you think the devil might have questions for you, you might want to reconsider what you're doing. <laughs> mm. I'm not religious, but I do enjoy Lucifer. <laughs> a lot. It, could, Tom Hella, could, could Tom Ellis be any more attractive? Um, I actually don't think so. I mean, the big dick energy is just... You can see that shit from orbit. <laughs> just like... <laughs> look at you. <laughs> what? What? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> this was the picture that kind of captured my attention the other day. Oh, it's from the same photo series as everybody else's lob jumped on, but this is the one that really got me. It was like, oh. I mean, he's literally asking someone to crawl on his lap right now. <laughs> I know. I think of that as like big dick at rest. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I had to explain to my husband what big dick energy was. He, uh, he he doesn't he's not on social media a lot, so he doesn't 
he doesn't always know these, you know, these new, these new, newfangled terms, right? And I was like, and he was like, "Are you fucking serious? Is this really what women talk about?" And I was like, "Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah." Um, but you do want to ask yourself if you've picked a character in the canon that works, but you also don't want to take the character too far. Um, especially a canon character, because I think that I think a lot of people would have been turned off ties that bind if I had made um well say for instance if Carter had physically attacked Rodney after he was collared by John. I mean, just just imagine how that would have gone if if I had written that. Or if you had put her if you hadn't written a Kevin Jordan, if it had just been her. And she kept escalating and escalating. Yeah. Um, which I don't think would be a good fit. That would be a turn too far. Because what we know about Sam Carter and Canon is that she's she's got a very narrow focus. Um, no, I would never add Lucifer to the ties that bind verse. I'm not opposed to writing Lucifer as a Dom in a separate series, but I would not inject any paranormal f- fandom into ties that bind. If I, I've turned down two people who wanted to write Teen Wolf, um, no. I mean, you can write it if you want to, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't acknowledge it as something as part of my universe, the way their stories are now. Because I just, I don't want to do that. I wouldn't want MCU either. Yeah, aliens and science that is way beyond. I mean, you've already got uh, SG Cannon. You don't need, yeah. um, you don't need it Marvel science too. I, I would just go down the whole rat hole of the miniaturized um, fusion reactor and lose my mind. But I have said yes to people who want to write NCIS, um, the original CSI with Lady Heather. Um, there was another one. Oh, there was a Spartacus one that was a modern AU. I wouldn't say no to an ATF, depending on the writer, and because because um, there are rules and standards by by which you're allowed to be attached officially to my ties that bind universe. And of course, a Y five O, which 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 Senate is writing, um, but. Yeah, paranormals don't work with it. It just it just wouldn't it'd be a step too far, I think, personally. Yeah. So But I could definitely write Lucifer as a Dom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although the way he is in canon, I mean he doesn't mind getting it on occasion too. I mean, you could definitely see him going, Oh, I'd like a good spanking this morning. <laughs> Um, Bring your strap on, darling. That's right. <laughs> so, um, when you're picking the antagonist, you want to be sure that it is a reasonable extension, a reasonable twist from their from the way they were in canon. Um, some characters it is much easier to do that with than others, and and then and then that you don't take it too far, because you if you want them to be your antagonist. And you take it too far, you may have taken them straight into villain territory. Um, like just you've got the whole evil thing going on, and you, you don't. And the issue will become not so much that the audience hates them, but that the audience can't. You, you've lost the suspension of disbelief. Like I don't understand this character behaving that way. And then you'll, you know, you'll be like. <sighs> I try to avoid having conversations with my readers about that kind of shit because um, I don't um, f- 
feel the need to justify my choices for characterization. But when you have reader after reader after reader coming at you and saying, hey, um, this doesn't make any sense to me. You, you, you need to acknowledge that you might have misstepped. You, you've, you've got a problem you need to look at in your work. I'm not saying you go back and edit what you've already written. Just make better, more careful decisions in the future. And we've all done it. No one's immune. You know, writing is a learning process, you know, and I, I want to learn every time I go out of the gate. Yeah. Even if I can't actually literally go visit a blacksmith. <laughs> no, you cannot. <laughs> Look, Thorin Oakenshield is a blacksmith. I had questions. Because I was kind of poking my, um, my Faeborn and he works in a forge. And so I had questions. He works in a forge in that story. And so I had questions about it. Anyways. So, yeah. So when it comes to pick your villain, pick your antagonist, um, make sure it serves your story. If you're going to use a canon character, make sure it's realistic that they would m do that kind of thing. Um, check yourself because it is, even when you're dealing with, and this, this comes more to dealing with the antagonist. You don't want your protagonist to start feeling like the villain because they overshot. Um, I read a Harry Potter story once where Harry Potter wound up being way worse than Voldemort in terms of his actions. Way worse. Um, at least Voldemort's actions as they were portrayed in that story. And and this was this was in terms of Harry dealing with Voldemort. It's the things he did to him were so detestable that I was like, okay, this is this is taking this way too far. I had to stop because I couldn't read it. I couldn't read Harry torturing somebody. Not like that. No. Although there really is this cute crack story where Harry doesn't want to kill. Um, oh, the one where he turns him into a foot, footstool? So so he turns him into an ottoman and his ottoman has a crush on his school trunk. Mm. Yeah, that, but I mean, cracky is a little bit of a different beast. Um, but he did turn a human being into an inanimate object. And I, I paused over it. But then I was like, <laughs> it just, Oswald the Ottoman. I mean, what do you do well, with that? But it seems like it seems like in canon that um, trans, you know, uh, transfiguration into an inanimate object isn't actually like depriving them of their sentience or anything like that. That they can be switched back. It's just he doesn't because why would he? It's sort of like you know, instead of putting you in prison, we're gonna we're gonna put you as a footstool. I don't know. It, it's crack is a really different I mean, set of things. Honestly, in that fic, Hermione ends up being an antagonist because she keeps trying to kill the footstool. And the footstool's just, you know, living his best life trying to hump the trunk. <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe I just said that. <laughs> and some days you've just gone too far. Look, he was just trying to get laid. I, I, I understand. And Harry agreed that his trunk was cute. How did I get here? I don't know. <laughs> We have to be careful anytime Harry Potter comes up, but <laughs> I hope I hope that answered the question. But I mean, I don't know that it was very specific about like how do you pick. Um, you just need to make a choice that's powerful and that you can manage without turning your villain into a caricature. So, did I say that right? My my tongue's a little mobile tonight. Yeah, caricature. So you said it right. But you know, like in some stories, the the antagonist is really. The antagonists potentially are really obvious. Like if you're writing a dead air tag, 
I mean, you've got a potential wealth of antagonists built in, depending upon how far you want to go. And one of the things you kind of, if you're going to really get into that, it means you have to ask yourself, do you want Gibbs and McGee and Ziva and Abby and the director to all be in an antagonistic position? And if you do, how are you going to manage that? Because I'm not saying you can't have all of them functioning in an antagonistic position to to Tony. Um, but it's a lot. It's it's actually honestly unrealistic for a couple of reasons. One, Vance is the biggest CYA I've ever, ever seen in characterized primetime television. There is no way he would not be covering his own ass. Even if that that meant in firing everybody but Gibbs. Because he can't fire Gibbs because Gibbs can blackmail him. Right. So you just got to think about that. I could see get Vance trying to persuade Tony to let him cover it up, but um, to actually just be in, in an overtly antagonistic position to what what's going on with Tony, um, it it's a little questionable. But it, you know, you it depends on how well you manage it. You can do it, but it depends on how well you manage it. Um, so just make the decision thoughtfully. Um, what sometimes if you're writing something related to an event in canon. I think the antagonist or the villain is like really obvious, but if you're crafting an original character to be your antagonist or your villain, that's really different. And that's where you really need to understand the function they serve in your story. And um, the way I read the question was I, I, it read more like it was about canon characters to be, but, you could you could also craft an original character to be a villain or an antagonist in your story. And in that case, you just need to be sure you understand the function that they're serving, and um, their function, their limitations, and their power. Like, what can they do to your character? How can they influence your character's motivations um, and internal conflict? What kind of external pressures are they going to put on your character? And you want to give them legitimate checks and balances so you're not writing some big giant alien who can snap his fingers and destroy half the galaxy. Oh, did, I, did I say that out loud? <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I still could be a little salty. Or bitter. Or bitter. But my main problem with Thanos isn't his power or the gauntlet it's his motivation i i felt like they misstepped there because i think his motivation in the comic books was much more um humanizing and interesting and it 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 but just because he because he didn't create balance his his his, his whole argument was ridiculous because they said he killed all life half of all life in the galaxy so he's not only killed people and animals he's killed resources as well the 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 destabilization of the ecosystems would have eventually destroyed all life in the galaxy. So it didn't really make a lot of sense. But um, and you I could say he's just crazy, and that's fine. But you don't hook a whole damn movie franchise on crazy. In the comics, he was in love with death, and he kept killing people as gifts. Which honestly, he should have just given her flowers because what. What man thinks that making a bitch work is a gift? I'm just saying. Right? 
It's sort of like, let's say you worked like at a 7-Eleven or something, right? And this dude's got a crush on you. And so what he comes in is he takes all the stuff off of a shelf and puts it on the floor and waves at you and leaves. And you're like, I got to put that back, motherfucker. So you go and you put all the stuff back. And he comes in, he takes everything off the shelf and puts it on the floor and waves on his way out. And you're like, and then you find out he's trying to court you. And you're like, what? This is not, this is not how this works. <laughs> this is not how any of this works. If he wanted to court court death, he could have tried to make sure less people died, so he had she had time to go on a picnic, right? Bitch, be hungry. Anyways, I'm just saying that you want to make choices that make sense that don't make your reader go look up shit like, can you really put a 200 pound man in the back of a VW Beetle? When does rigor mortis set in? Is it? Is that body go? Can he get that body out of that trunk if it's in rigor mortis? Could Probably he put not. that body in that trunk if it was in rigor mortis? These no. are these are questions that your reader will stop and go look up. <laughs> so you need to anticipate those kinds of situations when it comes to your scenarios and your villains and your antagonists and your protagonists, and you want to lampshade. So that you create a situation where your reader is comfortable and they don't have to stop and go look up how it takes a body to come out of rigor mortis. I'm, you know. I have many a time been reading a fic and I stopped to double fact check somebody because I'm like, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> and 95% of the time, it's not right. So it, it's my radar for that doesn't seem right is, is pretty spot on. Um, okay, I think we think if, we have, if, there's, if there's ever follow up questions to a topic that we've think we've moved on from um just put them in the ask ask a question for the podcast and we'll we'll revisit um okay so sachi asks when writing something that spans a long time at what point do you want to skip gloss over some happenings and when do you want to delve deeper should you skip anything um i'm thinking a span of years and story time but i want to keep my readers there for the same length of time <laughs> no you really wouldn't um well, what I did in No Enemy Within, that's the first book in Lantia Legacy, is that I clocked the expedition's time with Miko's pregnancy. The first time you see Miko on screen, you also find out that she's pregnant. She's barely pregnant. And the only reason that they know she's pregnant is because the baby showed up on a life, a life detector that they were um, working on in the lab. And by the time Atlantis leaves that planet... She is so pregnant that Carson took her up in a jumper because he didn't want to risk her being on the the city when it was taken off the planet. Just and that's and that's more keeping track of time, which is an important thing as you figure out how to let your readers know how time is passing. But the question of whether how when to start skipping events, it's honestly I, really it's really honestly really complicated because the easy thing to say is once you've done your setup, let's say, let's say, you know, that your, your end game is years down the road. No, you're not going to write a story. Uh, you're not going to write years and years worth of events. Um, so I would say, typically you're going to write to the point where everything is in motion and then skip. And then you fill in the blanks of how stuff, cause you don't want to, take the you want usually it's that rising action is what people want to see it's like okay um okay so like let's say you're going to have um tony go be agent afloat on atlantis okay 
Um, not mad. Not mad at this idea. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of stories where he is the agent afloat. So if you're curious about that trope, there's there's many a stories out there. Um, Lady Holder has one. Yeah, Lady Holder has one. Um, there's several several on um, Ao3. Um, Jeep wrote one. But let's say you let's say you take Tony out to Atlantis, okay? And he's going to have a um, take over base security, okay? So let's say that's one of the things he's going to do is take over base security as well as criminal investigations. Um, and let's say it's kind of canon circumstances, so it's not like down the road. So let's say it's going to be, um, let's say your plan is that he's going to have two or three people working for him and um, he's going to run investigations and then maybe he winds up because there's not quite enough work with the number of people out there. Um, he winds up on a field team as well. Okay. So that's your plan. Um, that's your plan. Um, getting Tony, the stuff you want to write, like, let's say you, you have a big event that's going to happen four or five years down the road. You're, you want to write him probably getting there, you know, to the get, he, he finds out about Atlantis. He gets recruited. He gets to the city. He meets some people. Do you, do you want to write him going through every investigation he does? Do you want to write him to the point that he's getting on a field team? See, I would probably get him to the city, get him acquainted with people. And then if I needed to, if the big part of my story was later, then do a time skip where he's on a field team as well. Um, his team has grown as opposed to going through the hiring process of every person and the picking out office supplies and packing up his stuff. I mean, you guys gotta be careful about the level because what happens is when you're covering every event that happens for years that aren't truly relevant to your story, it's minutia that is really boring, usually. Yeah, I don't care how many pairs of socks he took to Atlantis. And it's just, it's just it's, it becomes a thing where people think they need to explain everything. And you can even time skip. Like, let's say you do a time skip three years down the road, and he's in a relationship, and um, he's on a team, and there are other people working investigations, or maybe there's 10,000 people living on the city now. You can fill those details in really easily as he goes about his daily grind. And then in the middle of that chapter where you've done your time skip, the Wraith attack. So, you know, you can fill in the details of everything that's gone on for the last two or three years without actually sh <coughs> showing that on screen. <clears throat> okay, she's muted. Um, also, what what I did, um, whether you do small time skips or big time skips, um, I did a small one in um, No Enemy Within. Um, I did a big one when I move from one book to the next, which is a good place to do it. Like if you're writing either episodes or you're writing an arc or you're doing a couple of different um, uh, time periods. If I just wanted to establish Tony on Atlantis, I would probably do a prologue where he, where mm -hmm. he gets recruited. And if this, especially in a novel format, I would do a, um, I would do a prologue where he gets recruited and, um, and then I would open up my first chapter with, whatever I want to happen, whether it's a race invasion or a murder, you know, not something he expected to ever get on Atlantis, um, depending on how many people are out there already. Um, so it's a little shocking, you know? Um, so you, you want to begin in the middle. That's, yeah. But quit saying that people take it too literally. <laughs> I know. I was like, but, but don't, 
if you're having to do 50 flashbacks and you know do three pages of exposition you started you've you've, you've, please stop (laughs) i tell people i usually i usually i had in my mind i'd say it is i'm starting at the story at where something is about to change for my character but when you're Um, doing that that skipping around um, flashbacks of the devil when you're doing skipping around what i like to do is um kind of kind of move my camera out a little bit as i'm moving through um time skips and then push my camera back in on moments of emotional growth um moments of uh, great physical change um moments that define how my characters are going to go forward moments that speak to my GMC's goals, motivation, and conflict. Um, Because those are the moments that your reader really want to see. They don't care about what he packed in his go bag. Um, Unless it's coffee. Because, of course, coffee. Um, So, I mean, I, and you can, you can, it's certainly not it's not wrong to put a big time skip in the middle of your story. It's not something I personally favor. Um, but like Kira said, I will typically will do a big time skip at the beginning, uh, at the end of a prologue. That's often one of the reasons why I would write a prologue is because I need a big time skip. And so the prologue has a very different feel. And often you, and then you do a big, t- it's not, at all uncommon to do a big time skip before an epilogue. And, and honestly, when I read an epilogue that happens five minutes later, I, my eyes just roll right out of my head. That, like, that is not an just, epilogue. No. Um, it's a five so, paragraph chapter asshole. <laughs> right. So you, I, it, for me, in terms of the structure of, of the novel, if I'm going to do a big time skip, it's going to be, you know, usually after the prologue before chapter one. Um, and then if I if feel like I need a big time skip in the middle, I might look at my structure and just ask myself, is this two novellas? Am I doing episodes? I mean, is it better served for the, because sometimes what happens if like, let's say you've got a big moment, like Tony gets to Atlantis, he, he meets the team. Maybe you've got a really big moment there. You don't want the big moment from the first half of your story to eclipse the big moment in the second half of your story, which is where sometimes splitting it into two novellas can be a better choice. Um, some people, um, will do something I think of like as a bridge, I think it's like a bridge chapter where like they write a chapter that is basically a series of big time skips. Um, like you get to chapter two, like you've got all your setup done through chapter one or chapter two. So let's let's say start at chapter three, you know, they'll start every scene is skipping ahead a month or two months and then six months. Um, so that by the time you get to chapter four, you're actually two or three years in the future. Um, but I would not, not do that often because it's exhausting. It is exhausting. Um, and that's certainly something I've seen that done very well, where it was very effective to kind of keep the continuity and have like little mini scenes that kind of gave you the show of how things were changing. I've also seen that done very badly where it was just like, it just felt as tedious as if they had written out. I was like, yeah, none of that was necessary. Um, and this is where we talk, we've had a whole podcast, I think about pithy comments that we make like, you know, show, not tell. Um, because there are absolutely some things you should tell and not show. Harry shopping, you know, 
We don't need to know that he bought 10 pairs of pants. And I don't care which, which side of the pond you're from, either kind of pants. We don't need to know. <laughs> um, It'll come back to bite you every single time. There'll be some asshole reader. That wasn't in Harry's shopping list. He out-ordered. <laughs> Just stop. Just stop. He didn't buy dress robes. And you've made note of every single thing that he's bought in this story, so I know that he didn't buy any dress robes. Um, then they're so speculating. There's... Does Molly still have his key? Is she stealing his money? And you gotta explain shit. You know, just 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 save yourself some trouble. That's all, that, that's all we're saying. All right. So somebody tells you, okay, you gotta do show not tell. You know, so you should show it all, right? So you know that your character is going to go through um, four meetings at the Pentagon. They're not particularly relevant to your story, um, other than the fact that they happened and what the outcome was. And yet, because somebody said show, not tell, you write all four of those meetings and it takes you three chapters of really boring meetings. Hi, how are you? This is so-and-so. This is so-and-so. Passing through security, getting tea, coffee, maybe. I mean, and it's just, unless you're really establishing something about your character in those scenes, that is the wrong kind of show. Because you could just say, you know, Tony met with four different people at the Pentagon. The one general was a dick. He liked so-and-so, and the other two was kind of a waste of time. Yes, that's tell. But if none of that information is important to your story, you don't need to really show it. But if you want to show it, what you do is you see you have Tony leaving the Pentagon. Um, he's tired he's a little frustrated he's been you know he's kind of bored he's gonna go get you know a drink or something he sits down at a bar you know orders a drink thinks you know just just let and that demonstrates what those meetings did to him versus what he did in those meetings so you get an emotional connection to your character that you can work with versus this monotonous sideshow of meetings with characters you'll never see again and that's also something you need to keep in mind when you're introducing a character you don't want to have 50 or 60 background characters that have names and titles and and jobs in in your narrative that, that you that only appear once it's it's useless yeah. you can also create a red herring situation especially if you have uh, a particular con like particularly arrogant general at the pentagon who gives tony a hard time well your reader is going to expect to see that arrogant general again but you're not you're, but he's a throwaway to you so you're never going to use him again but you invested all this time into making him something that could be a threat or a problem and then he's never a problem so people think you foreshadowed something and you just were trying to make the character somewhat interesting uh, you know yeah, and, and then they will email you about it and ask you when he's going to come back so it's sort of like um, we, we've talked about what the quote should be and it's sort of like show the things that are important to your story um, as opposed to show not tell because they're, they're just, if you showed everything that took your character to where they are, there'd be a lot of boring stuff in there. And I don't know any author, honestly, who doesn't summarize certain things. They don't give like a, a one sentence summary thing in the character's narrative that, you know, explains how they got to this thing or whatever. They don't, they don't show literally everything. It's just, there's nobody that writes that way. Um, the other thing, good. yeah. And the other thing, like the other piece of like, one of the other pieces of pithy advice that you hear is uh, write what write, you know. Write what you know. 
And as Kira rephrased that, learn what you can and then write what you know. Because um, if you only wrote what you know, you know, I, I've been spending a lot of time writing about project managers and technical writers, and that's just really tedious. Right. Yeah, I mean, I personally would miss the butt sex. <laughs> right? And I mean, <laughs> I could spend some time writing about cross-stitch. I used to cross-stitch like a mad person. But, you know, I mean, who wants to read about that? <laughs> No one. So, yeah, there are YouTube videos for that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I, I did read somebody's story that had a lot of information about a paint a room. Um, wasn't relevant to the story in any meaningful way, but I could tell they actually knew something about painting. So, you know, you just got to be careful about pithy advice because it's like, what is, anytime anybody gives me pithy advice, I go, what's the long form of that, please? Because you know, it's easy to remember the pithy thing. Um, it, it's not as quotable when you get the whole the whole shebang. But yeah, that really is the worst writing advice I ever got. Was write what you know. Yeah, because it, it it doesn't. It honestly kind of sti is it, it stifles creativity and it stifles uh, world building and and the desire to research and grow as a writer. It's just terrible advice and they probably meant it as you know a little bit right from your own i think part of it is they're saying right from your own experience but the other side of it is you know right what you have some expertise in right but it, it doesn't account for you know imagination it doesn't account for the ability to research it just doesn't account for google so no but yes i think it's remember how old that advice is to you know so yeah. that, that probably says, plays into it. If Reaper says, yeah, because those fantasy writers what, wrote what they knew. Yeah, exactly. Um, that would certainly explain the lack of female characters in um, The Hobbit. Right? Oh, look. I found another, I found another topic on which I'm salty. <laughs> um, okay. so t But in terms of time skips, you just got to figure out approach to... Um, an approach that works structurally for the story first. And then you've got to decide what mechanism you're going to use to let readers understand the passage of time. Um, Kira talked about her method of tracking the story's progress through, through Miko's pregnancy. Sometimes you just put a timestamp at the top of the chapter. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's certainly a lot clearer than if, if you, if you aren't, um, don't have a, anything better Especially just, if it's like years, yeah, years would be great. Just, 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 just give me a date, baby. I can work with that. Yeah, or even if it's not a, you know, and sometimes if it's been years, you might say, you know, let's say you're in 2003 and you're jumping forward to 2006. There's nothing wrong with just saying, you know, July 2006 dash three years later, just to cue those of us in who didn't notice the first timestamp that it was 2003. Um. Should you so the question makes sure uh, when do you delve deeper? When it comes to delving deeper, you should always delve deeper in the stuff that moves your story forward. Um, if it's not helping you move the story forward or helping you know show interesting things about your character, and usually you can do those two things at the same time, then it's don't delve and don't don't deep dive on things that don't help you. Um, and most of the time you see people deep diving on things that they're passionate about or they spend a lot of time researching and they want you to know about it, Gina Yule. Yes. 
Or, you know, in Harry Potter fandom, sometimes people do a lot of world building on their magical theory, and they want to be sure you understand the entire scope of the magical world building they've done. And it's like, you know, 10,000 words of exposition later. It's like, okay, I, I didn't even understand any of that, but all right. Um, so that is what you're passionate about. If you're really, and it's hard. I mean, when you've gone and learned something or you've done a lot of world building, it is hard not to put everything you have learned and researched or made up into that story. It is difficult. I will totally grant you that, but resist the urge. Because the point of it is that you know, so that the information you're presenting is consistent and it doesn't break the suspension of disbelief. Um, but, you know, I mean, I researched for, for I spent like 45 minutes re researching elevators in um, skyscrapers and the speeds at which they travel so that I could have a one line piece of dialogue about how long it was going to take. And it was just so Jarvis could let Tony know when his visitors would be arriving. I'm like, does that take two minutes in a building that big? Is it 40 seconds? Hold on. I'm going gonna, um, gonna to mute myself. Um, so, but the thing is, is I learned quite a bit about elevator skyscrapers in that research binge. Um, it wouldn't have served my story at all to have a you know a bunch of narrative about the type of elevator Tony had bought so that it would you know travel from the lobby to the 82nd floor in under a minute it, that would have just been me sharing with the audience something that I had researched it wouldn't have served the story at all just Jarvis delivering an accurate piece of information was the goal right knowledge flex I like that don't do it resist because your point to research is so that you can have some, is so that you know what you're writing about. The point of your world building and that you make it, you know, the more world building you do, it's so that you can be internally consistent in your story. It is not so that you can, you know, bludgeon your readers with all this information. Because, and the reason actually is because it ruins the pace of the story. There will inevitably be that reader or handful of readers who want to read all the stuff, all the stuff, but it doesn't mean it's good craft. And, you know, you could write a little essay if you wanted to <laughs> about everything you learned and put it up for those readers. Um, yeah, there is Wikipedia, but it's actually not good story craft to ruin your pace with an info dump of stuff that doesn't help your story. So when it comes to what to focus on when you're moving through, you know, when you're doing a time skip or you're pondering a time skip is what moves the story forward? What happened in those years that was important that you need to bring in. And when you do your time skip, the most critical thing is to not just info dump for two pages about what happened in the intervening two, two or three years. Um, to keep your pace moving and keep the reader engaged, you want something to be happening. And you throw a line here about it or a line there, a paragraph here, a paragraph there, um, to get the reader up to speed at the point at which it becomes important that they know. So, you know, if your character has gotten married, you know, the easiest way to show that your character's gotten married, have them wake up in bed with their spouse and, you know, just a, 
a one line thing about how you know, they've been married for two years now and then just show the interaction. Don't do two or three paragraphs explaining that they got married and then show the interaction that's double duty. And the showing is much more interesting. Actually, I don't know what's up. So I'm gonna go ahead and answer the question that is specifically about one of my stories. Um, and I will I'll catch Kira up when she gets back. Um, so Angel in Darkness asks um, about emergence um, or using emergence as an example. When dealing with major crossover and having several people like that, how do you decide who to have with what powers, abilities, anything like that? Like with how Spencer's empathy was different from the other wyverns and how the different colors and abilities. How do you decide that and how would you suggest them go about making decisions like that? Um, I think that boils down to knowing your character really well. Knowing what their strengths are, knowing what their weaknesses are. Knowing... Um, Hmm. Knowing um, and also what their powers are going to, how their power, how their abilities are going to impact the GMC, the goals, motivation, and the conflict of your character and of your story itself. Um, because if you give somebody, if you if you overpower a character, um, you you can strip away conflict, especially external conflict. If they are indefeatable, indestructible. You've you've created an overpowered character that um, is could quickly become unlikable. Yeah, it it also removes any conflict. And I've read stories like that. It's like an obstacle is thrown in the character's path, and they basically swat it away because they're so powerful. Um, and and that removes conflict. It, you don't want to strip all the conflict out of your story. It's so, you know, it's sort of like in, um, I know this is not up online. I try not to use examples of stories that are not available, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I really overpower, um, superpower Tony in, um, Sentry, but he's got some limitations, you know, he uses his abilities too much and he's going to pass out and have to, you know, go have a sunbath. Um, also in his case, you know, his, his, his sort of deeply entrenched sense of right and wrong almost becomes an obstacle to being as superpowered as he is because he's not going to do some things. He's just not willing to, he's not willing to be anybody's murder puppet. Um, yeah. Cause Hydra made Superman. So giving um, some limitations here and there, but I will say that um, Tony's obstacles as that series progresses are become um more Thor's obstacles than his own because he is ridiculously overpowered. But I knew that going in, that his obstacles were going to be more about the things that were happening on Asgard than, than things happening on earth. Um, so, you know, if you're going to over superpower a character and you're going to give them the ability to kind of swat away most problems with the level of power that they have, you know, do you have another source of conflict for them? That's why you have to dig deep into emotional conflict, which can be a bloodletting. So it's not something that I honestly really seek out for myself. I want my characters to grow and change, but I'm not really interested in torturing myself as a writer. Right. Now, in the case of Sentry, but the big conflict is going to be in the sequel is going to be the situation on Asgard with Odin and Loki and Hela. And that's plenty of conflict. I don't, I'm not going to have to dig deep for that. Right. That's all right. built into canon. And um, 
So it's it's not him being super powered. He's not any more super powered than you know many of the Asgardians. So it's not on Earth. However, if my if the obstacles were things on Earth, he's I've I've overpowered him for that kind of thing. So, and honestly, one of the reasons why Thor I think isn't in a lot of the movies is because he'd be able to resolve things way too easily. Yeah, being a god. Yeah, they can't. They couldn't have him in Civil War. Because the, the other side, down. yeah, whatever side he's on, I don't think he would actually take a side. I think he would just be like, "This is not happening." Um, this is dumb. Sit down. Yes, we are. We are going to talk about this. So it, you have to just be careful when about what abilities you give a character that you don't give it, make it too much. I've seen this a lot with Harry Potter, where Harry is so ridiculously overpowered. Or conversely, that Dumbledore is. And that Dumbledore becomes undefeatable um, the way he's written. And usually those stories stall out because there's, uh, you know, there's just nowhere. He has too many, uh, he just, he has too many powers. Everybody's on his side. Everybody's out to get Harry and kill him and make him do what Dumbledore wants. And he has no allies. And that situation creates, you're going to write yourself into a corner. Yeah. So it, when it, but when it comes to, now I did have to, um, when it came to emergence, um, I had just decided that originally that, when I did the world building, that the drakes were, that there was color was significant with the drakes. That the type of, that the color they had signified the role they functioned in their clans or tribes or whatever you want to call it. I think I call them wings in that story. Uh, but within their wing, that they have, um, that whatever innate abilities they had would be reflected in the scale color they had. And so when the Wyverns chose to basically take a similar form to the Drakes, they basically mirrored that in the fact that their abilities would be reflected in their scale color. Um, so that's how I kind of came to the, that decision. It was just a decision that, that their abilities would be something that was visual. Um, but it certainly wasn't something I needed to do. I could have made them all one color and it wouldn't have functionally changed things all that much, but it was just something I decided that I thought would be um, fun. And it, and it, yeah, fun and intriguing element is that um, innate abilities manifest uh, physically. Um, it obviously was a very intriguing development because how many readers asked you for all the colors? <laughs> all the colors. I had one reader that knitted all the dragons in the story. That is charming it's, it is, she sent me pictures it was very cute um so that was how i kind of came to that i thought well i want i'm going to give them some innate abilities and what is that going to look like okay i've decided it's going to actually look like something um and then one of the reasons i kind of like the idea of sort of defying um stereotypes a little bit because the the wyverns are actually much more powerful than the drakes in in terms of abilities they're not as physically like like brute force as powerful because they're not as big as the drakes but they have more um like the empathy abilities they actually have powers and so i like the i made them the kind of like you know floofy like pastel pearly colors um to kind of fuck with people right it's like oh well they're sort of harmless over there because it based upon their appearance. And so that was kind of, that was just me being a little bit me. <laughs> we don't mind. 
And I did want Tony to have this moment where he thought he was going to be a pale pink dragon and not be able to deal with it because Tony was getting his notions of his, of himself and his masculinity challenged a lot in that story. And um, him working through that and working past whatever toxic masculinity he picked up in his life was part of the point. So that was sort of a funny way for it to initially come out was, Oh my God, I'm going to be a pale pink dragon. But you know, if he had been a pale pink dragon, he wouldn't have cared, is the point. Eventually, he'd have gotten to the point that it wouldn't have mattered. Right, exactly, Dark. How dangerous can it be? It's pink and glittery. <laughs> so, I'm going to um, set your little ass on fire, and then you will know how dangerous I am. So, it's... um. And then in terms of which characters had which abilities, um, when, when it came to Spencer and his unusual empathy... um. One of the reasons why I picked him is because I think empathy would be uncomfortable for him to begin with. And so all, all Wyverns were em empathetic um, because it's a mirror of the whole guide thing. But um, in his case, that he has such extensive abilities with, I wanted it to be that they didn't realize that he was unusual in his abilities. And it was easier to have it come up later because they just assumed it was his discomfort with having his empathy at all. So because he's a, a, in canon, he was kind of not comfortable in that emotional space. It was easy to say, well, if you give him any empathy, he's going to not deal with it well. But in reality, it was that the reason he wasn't dealing was because he was so overpowered in that regard that he didn't know how to control it. So um, I thought he would be the ideal choice to be able to be in that circumstance and that nobody would be able to figure out that that's what it was because it just was assumed to be um, he, he just a basic discomfort. So, and then, but when it comes to like the, how do you pick which character is the Wyvern or the Drake? That's the same kind of discussion as we've had before about how to pick which character is the Sentinel or the guide. And and that's kind of where I how I picked it actually, because it is kind of a, mirror in a lot of ways of the sentinel is how does the character resonate for you you know which which how do they resonate when you think about is this character a sentinel or are they a guide um or like ellie's we talked before about ellie's working on a um sky high au for teen wolf and she's got to think all those teen wolf characters and figure out well, what power makes sense for them and that's one of those things that I think it's a little difficult to give people advice about because we've, we've had some like brainstorming sessions, but it's difficult to give like concrete advice because it matters how you look at the character and how you perceive them. In some ways, I think there is, you don't need to dismiss the fact that some of it's like an instinctual decision that you make going into it, you know, and, and what resonates with you as a, as a reader and as a writer. Yeah, because I mean, you you formed opinions about this character um, long before you ever sat down to work on that story. If you're thinking about using them as a main character in a story, you, you must be somewhat familiar with them. So you formed opinions about them through what you've read or what you've seen, and you might have an immediate response. Now, when it comes to like picking a superhero power, that might be a little bit more difficult than is this person, you know, like in a binary sense, are they a sentinel or a guide? Or are they a Wyvern or are they a Drake? Because that's like one or the other. And it's a little easier. But when you're going, okay, with the spectrum of powers, which one does this feel like this one would, this, this character would have? Um, that's, that's a little harder. But you still probably are going to have a, um, 
some sort of sense of which way that would go. And other people can give, like, sometimes when it comes to, like, that is, sometimes I wouldn't have thought of a superpower. Like, okay, that really does, seems like a great power for this person, and I just wouldn't have thought of it. And that's where other people can help. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't resonate with you, it's not going to stick. And you're the one who's got to be writing it. You're going you're gonna to be the one spending 10, 15, 100K with it. So you need to make a decision that not only um, intrigues you and interests you and resonates with you, but one that you can deal with, with for 100K. Right. Or more. So you don't want to start disliking your story, especially if you post as you go. You don't want to start disliking your story because you made a decision about the person's power four chapters ago and it's just not working for you. Or you made a decision that this character is a guide or a sentinel and it's not sticking in your brain. It just won't gel. Um, or you've made a decision that this character is gay. Yeah. It doesn't f fit for you. And that's that's okay. Or you've made a decision that, that you're going to have this this particular pairing and you plotted the whole thing and then you spend 50k teasing the fuck out of your alpha reader and your alpha reader is waiting for the bang and there's no bang. Because <laughs> you didn't notice. <laughs> Not that I'm speaking from experience. Not that, no. Y'all, yeah. <laughs> you could have cut that fucking sexual tension with, with a butter knife. Oh my god. I mean, there are there are scenes in that story where it looks like they're just inches away from actually literally fucking. Like they're they're, they're... I don't understand how dicks weren't out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's like, what are they gonna fuck? I'm like, that's not the pairing. <laughs> Are you sure? What do you mean it's not the pairing? And the story is uh, intuitive, and it is on Evil Author Day. Um, <laughs> well, I can be oblivious to the best of them. Um, but yeah, but we've all done that, and that's the point. I mean, she's she's telling a banging story with this. This is banging. It is a really good story. And she has this plan, and she's t tooling along, doing her thing. And I'm reading and making assumptions based on what I am seeing. And it is an assumption on my part. Not something that she outright telegraphed or stated. She didn't put it on her author notes. This is my assumption that I've made based on what I'm reading. And you cannot control what your reader does when it comes to that. You can't control what they get out of your work. You can't control um, how they feel about your work. Or what they read into it or see in it. You just can't control any of that. No, but Kara was my alpha reader, so I went back and reread the story, like really read it, and I was as like from a reader perspective, as opposed to you know in my writerly brain where I thought I knew what it said, and I just kind of, I wound up like rubbing my forehead, going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so, and then I had to make a decision: do I do I leave that as like UST that never goes anywhere? Do I try to write that out, take the tension, the sexual tension out, um, so that it's not like a red herring or do I change the pairing and the path of least resistance, which is the one I went with was change the pairing because I hadn't even introduced the character who was going to be the pairing yet. So that was a no brainer. Um, but anyway, when it comes to doing world building and deciding who's going to do what, and especially if you're dealing with multiple fandoms, um, it just is a matter of how well do you know the characters and what works for you? It's, it's on some to some degree, it's a, it's a, for me, a lot of times it is a, an instinctive kind of gut reaction. But sometimes I talk to somebody and go, you know, Kira and I had several long discussions about the NCIS characters and whether there would be DOM subs or switches in the, in the, uh, um, 
in the ties that bind universe. And I think for the most part, we've kind of instinctively felt the same way about almost all the characters. Um, but we still talked it out because I wanted a sounding board to kind of work through that and, and to figure out like, well, who would have had what kind of training and in, you know, sometimes you just need a, a, another, you need some help working that stuff out. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go on to another question. But, so, but also keep in mind your own bias because we're, nobody is bias free. We all have, um, these these moments in um our history that have defined how people react and move in your world and sometimes you will look at a character and you'll think something about them on on some unconscious level that you've picked up from societal cues that make no sense when you really look at it yeah, I mean, yeah, that that can be a factor because there are some people who write Sentinel Guide as if the Sentinels are the men and the guide or the guides are the women, effectively, and that and that's, it kind of, that's it, it comes out in their writing, and it's it is gross. It is deeply misogynistic because you put they're, they're putting this female character ish thing into a position of submission, um, and not like willing submission either. This is subversive. It's um, it's misogyny and you need to be really careful with it. Uh, one of the worst things I ever had a reader tell me is that, um, and this was their bias, not my own, but that they could not read Harry Potter as bisexual or gay because he wasn't that kind. They perceived Harry as an alpha and an alpha would not. Um, didn't you also have a reader tell you that he could, couldn't read? He, he'd read Harry with Draco, but not if Harry was on bottom. I, I yeah, I I heard that as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's and that exactly was why there there's a there used to be on Area Fifty Two a mandatory warning for bottom Jack O'Neill. I can't even. That just so irritates me. And so, but also there, me and Jilly share a little thing. Let me tell you. I, I can't tell you the, the specifics because it, okay. So but I'm, I'm going to tell you what I can't. So there, we, we are familiar with this particular fandom where there is this hot ass, bitch ass boss woman, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> God. And we, I told her, I said, I can picture her fucking him. And she went, yes. Oh, Yes. But then I thought to myself, would I think that if she wasn't a badass? Yes. I think you would. <laughs> she is a but, badass, though. Because I mean, she's a boss. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing about her. And I, I can't tell you guys who it is. But <laughs> most badass... We're not, we're not being on purpose. Most badass female characters, to me, are often bitches. They're just bitchy. Um, this This female character is not she is she is she is it she's well fleshed she's fleshed out she is um I, it's just she 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 does it all she is a badass without being obnoxious um but what also i would say about um this particular female character is that she's she's flawed she's um she's troubled um mm -hmm. she's she's doing the best that she can she's got a lot of trauma um but also she's very caring. And so when I 
thought about how that sort of sexual intimacy would work with them, it crossed my mind that for her, it wouldn't be an act of dominance. It would be, okay, my man wants this because he wants to get off, so I'm going to give it to him. It'd be just an act of love. So, and if my man you know, wants it, my man gets it. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know. And he's the same way. If she wants it, she gets it. So, um, but it wasn't because she was a badass. Although some of the elements physically that make her a badass just made the visual that much more attractive. But whatever. <laughs> um, for me, that was banging. Like, um, we're being so good. <laughs> <laughs> we'll change the subject, but anyway, but you kind—I—I I think when you kind of have those kind of reflexive thoughts, it's worth exploring. Is there kind of any um, entrenched misogyny going on here, or any just anything? And if you're, if you are putting the character who seems like sometimes somebody was told me they always put the that make the guide be the less masculine. If they're flash writer, and they always make the guide the less masculine of the two, and I was it's like, gross. That feels like misogyny, especially since in her world building, guides struggle with not being subjugated. And I was like, eh, okay. Um, so just look at your, look at any of your own preconceived notions. But um, like some characters, I'm very, I'm flexible about the Sentinel guide thing, but there's some characters I only perceive as a Sentinel. I don't have a lot of characters I only perceive as a guide, but there are some I only perceive as a sentinel, like Ian Edgerton. Yeah. Um, but I'm not saying you have to perceive him this way. I'm saying I perceive him that way. I only perceive Ian as, an, as, as a sentinel. I mean, I feel so like that's not actually about his physicality or his skills, but more about his personality. I don't think he would handle having empathy well. I think he would hate it. And he wouldn't yeah. want it, and it would make him bitter. And I wouldn't want to write Ian bitter. So. But when you think about the function that he fulfills in canon, it kind of it resonates as Sentinel. Yeah. Um, so, and I there are a few other characters that I just, um, and actually, often it's a lot of times the characters I like to pair Tony with, where I'm like Sentinel. Like I I've read Steve as Steve McGarrett as a guide. I don't I. I can read it. I can't write it. In my head, Steve is like the quintessential Sentinel. But I can write Tony either way. I can actually write either Tony either way. So, um, But it's not about a masculine or feminine thing. But I have seen people that make the decision based on what feel like masculine feminine lines. And just, I mean, it's worth looking or at when you're making those kind of decisions. Or they decide who's the penetrating partner based on body size. Right. Or that the Sentinel is always the penetrating partner. Come on. Um, Which is honestly why in Sentinels of Atlantis, John gets so much dick. Because I have been told repeatedly that, you know, that the the, the Sentinel should be the penetrating partner. I was like, okay, (laughs) I'll fix you. I'm going to fix your little Which is why John is so intent on getting fucked as often as possible in Sentinels of Atlantis. (laughs) So... You know, just look at look at why you're making your decisions and um, challenge yourself. There's nothing wrong with challenging yourself, and and then go with what feels right. You know. Um, now I'm I'm gonna somebody asked a follow-on question to that. Um, somebody asked a question about about bringing like 
two fandoms together, basically fusing two fandoms with very different abilities like magic with Sentinel Guide. Um, I'm even though that's a follow-up question to the question we were just talking about, I don't think we can have time for that one because I think that would be like a whole podcast about how you take fandoms that really kind of don't go together and put them together. I agree. That's that's a big topic. But it's we'll, a big we'll, topic. We'll put it on our list. Yes, we'll 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 put that on the list, but um I'm I'm putting it in a file so that um we can we can we can have a specific podcast about that because the way to approach fandom fusions is is not a light topic. Okay, um, so we go. Um, let me delete both of those, and then we do go look at the. I don't think we have enough time for rogues, but you tell me because it's the it's the oldest question in the from tonight. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on that too, especially since this year has been so. Well, we kind of did one already. Yeah, we did. I don't. It's not up yet. I don't think. No, it's not. It's um, nurturing your creative spirit. Yeah. But I'll put it up. I'll yeah. put it up. I'll, I'll work on that. Um, so no. Well, but we'll we'll leave it up for now. Um, so the next question is from Ellie, who asks suggestions for handling crack taken seriously, um, and drawing the line between crack and the story. Um, I think for it to be crack taken seriously is for me the concept can be cracky, but the execution cannot be. Um, and an example of that is the um, the feeding frenzy. Um, except it's cracky, it just is. But the way we handled that, um, I in general, was that we take every every interview. The concept of all those interviews. Here's what's what's cracky. It's the concept of all those interviews, and the just the flood of job offers. But each interview should be taken seriously. Each encounter he goes on trying to find his path, it was taken seriously. So that is where we drew the line in that instance between the crack and and not was we kind of took a, a cracky concept and we did it seriously. And a little bit, a little bit, um, there's kind of a crack taken seriously thing to uh, Darkly Loyal. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not actually when you think I mean, it's not cracky in the sense of funny concept because awful things happen, but Harry and Draco and Hermione going back in time and basically becoming the dark trio and killing like literally everybody, um, you know, crack. It's a cracky concept, but the execution is intended to make you take it seriously. So, um, although I've never laughed harder than my whole life than when I wrote that staff meeting scene. That was so good. Um, I actually, and here's one of the things you need for, to me, for, um, I would say my short, what is it called? Oh my God, I can't believe I'm like, okay, guys, what is the, the, I have the Deadpool short, Deadpool sends Tony fingers, fingers. I can't, why am I blanking the name of my own story? (sighs) Somebody will tell me. Um, Perishable. Thank you. I would actually call that, and some people might challenge me on that, but I would call it crack taken seriously. And the reason is because it's difficult to write anything with Deadpool as a major character that isn't cracky. But the reason why it's crack taken seriously is because Tony's, it's Tony's point of view, and he's basically functioning as a straight man to Deadpool. So um, you need a character, you know, that is really grounded in reality when you've got a character like that. Um, so that to kind of point out the absurdity of what's happening. And I think that can help with the line between the crack and the, 
Because, I mean, I actually say that story is cracktastic, but I didn't write it like just crack. Because when I read crack, it is often ridiculous. It's just, and I have a hard, I, I have personally have a hard time writing that way. So because that is Tony's point of view, there's a serious kind of, his frustration with not being able to get through to Wade um, is the serious line. And that's kind of where I draw the line there in that particular instance. It'd be hard for me to carry a novel with Deadpool as a central character because. I think the fourth wall breaks would break, would, would break you. It would. I would eventually have to put fourth wall breaks in a lot of them. Um, and it would just drive me crazy. So, and he is cracky in canon, and everybody around him is are, well, function as his straight men, basically the straight man to him. So, I will never get over shark cocking. Oh, Just shark yeah. cocking it. Like, what, that, cocking how, is that, how is that a thing? I, was, that, was that a thing before that moment? I don't even know. I'd never heard it. I, I don't know. If it is, it's apparently somebody who have found an issue of people running around and just their with no underwear on. I mean, <laughs> but you know what though? What I would say about that, outside the the context of um, Deadpool, there's something really vulnerable about someone having on a shirt and nothing else, especially a short shirt. It's very vulnerable. To have your it is exposed and not the rest of you. I don't know what it is, but it's just, I, 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 I yeah. find a very vulnerable picture. I'd rather have I'd rather be fully naked than just have my exactly and my, and my pussy <laughs> exactly. hanging out. It's but yeah. oh about the fourth wall breaks. I think that if you're going to write crack taking seriously, that you absolutely cannot have a single fourth wall break, unless it's Deadpool. But then I can't take. Deadpool seriously. Yeah, but you can't take him seriously, but it doesn't mean the story isn't correct taken seriously. So um but you you just have to really ground your story in and, and I think also the the idea can't be too cracky. I like we had a we had a discussion in the Teen Wolf channel one day about Derek's eyebrows. It's already cracked from just the beginning of the discussion. And there was it, it was like that, you know that Derek hosts like p little teeny tiny pixies or something in his eyebrows or something. And then the idea came up. I mean, it was just a big old long discussion about um, that. Like there's some tiny Sprite clan or something in the for in the preserve. And that it is the duty of the Hales to, to foster their young and Derek does it in his eyebrows, whatever it was. It was a bizarre discussion. This is one of those things that happens. I want to say it happened late at night, but it was probably in the middle of the afternoon. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, come on now. <laughs> um, I think that eventually this turned into Sparkle McMurder Brows or something like that. It was it was bizarre. There's no way um, Sparkle Squeak McMurder Brows. I can't believe you found that, Ty. Um, there was no way to take any aspect of Derek having sparkly eyebrows with pixies nesting in them. and not. There's no way to take that concept and make it serious. It's too ridiculous. I just, I can't, right? It's just, Derek, why are your eyebrows glittery? Well, there's pixies nesting in them. I, how do you take that seriously? You can't, right? So that would be pure yeah, crap. Yeah, I can see Styles like, like, wait, wait. Are they evil pixies? 
<laughs> because I feel like because it's you, they probably would be evil pixies because you have the worst luck of anybody I've ever met. But right? crack taking seriously. You know our Bob concept? Our Bob. That's crack. That is pure crack that, that Tony Stark has a department in his in, in, is an SI dedicated to cussing people out for him. That is pure 100% crack. But you could write a serious story about it. You could. Because someone has to make that phone call where Tony cusses out the World Security Council for shooting a nuclear weapon at, at New York. So, you know, th there are moments in uh, that particular crack concept where Tony could be assigning or Jarvis could be assigning somebody a a phone call that is quite heavy. Yeah. So you could take an, you know, you could take that as the basic premise of the Bob and the Dicks. And you could, you could write an actual serious um, story based upon a crack, that cracky concept. But there are some concepts that are just, you know, on the face of it, they're too cracky to, 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 to in, in my opinion, to take seriously. So, you know, make sure your concept isn't too cracktastic and then treat it like it is um, not a crack story. I mean, that's kind of the way, that's part of the suspension of disbelief thing, right? Is that you treat it like, even though it's a cracky concept, you just, you don't ever treat it like it's one. Like, what would be really interesting and emotional and bloodletting, and I would never write it, but what if after Tony died, the Bobs kept doing it? Like, whenever somebody would do something that would have pissed Tony Stark off, they get a phone call from Bob. Oh my god, I hate you. Like, hi, I'm calling on behalf of Tony Stark. Isn't he dead? No, that's beside the point. This is Bob. <laughs> calling on behalf of Tony Stark. We want you to know. <laughs> I don't know what that's what at some point they become a we, you know, because <laughs> yeah, we want you to know no. that, that Tony that Tony Stark stay of the universe and he would not approve of what you have done. So it's like they become like like, like this big guilt guild. <laughs> So you could write Bob and Dick as crack. You could write Bob and Dick as crack taken seriously. Um, but the line is that, I think that's where the line is, is make sure the idea it can be extrapolated in some fashion into something serious. And the longer it is, I think the less cracky the idea can be. Because you have to be able to maintain um, that suspension of disbelief. And if it's based upon something completely implausible, the reader eventually is going to, what you can sustain in 10K is a lot harder to do in 100K. Like that Deadpool with Perishable, I could handle that for two or three K. I couldn't do it for a hundred. I couldn't write a hundred K story seriously where Deadpool sends Tony body parts in the mail to work. I mean, to work. <laughs> right. Because um, he would. He would. So I think that's where when, you, when you're trying to, I don't know if that helped Ellie, but when you're trying to find the line between how to do the cracktic and seriously part of it, um, which is what we did in, in Feeding Frenzy. That is a well over 100K, was the premise is cracky, but we're going to treat each interview as if it's a serious thing, as if it's really something he's looking into. And the reader is just going to suspend their disbelief about the absurdity of Tony getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of job offers 
Because A, they like Tony and they want him to get hundreds of jobs offers. So that's part of the suspension. Of I mean, because so basically that fic is just one big Harry Potter shopping trip. Sort of. I mean, not well. Part of it may. Parts of it maybe, But a lot of it because is. I think the biggest fandom wish in CIS is that if Tony could understand and be appreciated for his talents. Just like the biggest wish in Harry Potter is for him to have a really good family and to get all the stuff. All the things. Harry. We all agree Harry needs all the things. We just don't need it. We just don't need an exact inventory of all the things. <laughs> but so that's the thing. That, that's the trope. Giving your character in what they deserve that, that, that they don't get from canon. Which in Tony's case is respect and um, acknowledgement and love. And, and appreciation. So even though, so the audience wants to suspend their disbelief because they want Tony to get all the nice things. So that helps, right? Is that you kind of understand how much your audience is going to want to suspend their disbelief around the concept. And that's also why I picked the ending that I did. Now I got seduced by the, by the pairing. That's not my fault. That's, that's Nimue's me. fault. Yeah. Nimue. How dare she? Nimue of the North. I blame you, but I'm not mad because it was beautiful. I really enjoyed writing it. But what I would say is, is that all of that um, came into play because um, Tony really deserves someone soft and sweet and dedicated who could also have his back. And I think Reed is all of that. He has, he has Reed as a character has a tenderness about him that I find very compelling. Yeah. And Tony deserved that. So. So that's how we kind of approached it in that in that instance, even though we knew as soon as we started talking about the concept that conceptually it was cracky, but that we were going to approach it like it wasn't. Because um, it wouldn't be cracky. And the reason that it was cracky is because it, w it isn't cracky that he'd get some job offers. It's cracky that he'd get 100 job offers. So it's kind of the extreme nature of it. Without applying for a single job. Right, without applying for anything. Um, so let's see if any of the remaining questions are quick. I think this was the only one question left that's, that would be quick. That's okay. Chris asks, how do you decide how far back to time travel? I keep wanting to salt and burn Wizarding Britain. How far is too far? Um, well, I went back to the 40s. <laughs> so... Um, I think that you need to be careful. Yeah. Because one of the things that Julie highlighted in her particular story, which is called... Aliyamoto. Aliyamoto. Um, it's a story about Severus Snape time traveling. Is that he inadvertently and for a moment thinks that he destroyed the ability for Hermione Granger to exist. There was a moment when he thought that he had done something that, that would prevent her birth. And it was very well done. Um, because uh, he says not her, and you just—I thought for a minute that he meant Lily, but then no, he didn't. And it really—it it really highlighted his growth, and uh, spoke to how much he valued Hermione. Um, it was beautiful. But so you don't want to take your character or time character back so far that you make decisions and choices that makes it unlikely to have somebody exist that you need to exist. That's a Liamoto. I'm not sure if it's online. It is not. It's almost finished. It's one of the projects I'd intended to post this summer, but 
you know, this year has been this year. So it, it dumpster fire happened. Yeah. It's, it's likely that story will be up this year, but cause it really is. I'm, I'm just like, I just need to finish editing it really. Um, so I think I have like two scenes that need to be flushed out, finish writing them and then edit it. But yeah, this year, this year. Um, so, but in that case, in that one, um, I, be, I set when I, how far I went back by what, what I needed to accomplish. So my goal in the story was that Severus was going to go back and raise Tom Riddle. That, so I had to, so I knew I had to go back before his birth. And then it was a matter of, well, how far before his birth do I need to go um, in order to achieve my goals? And I needed Severus to be well-established in the magical world before Tom was born so that he would have the support structure he needed to get Tom the help he needed and to meet the people who are going to be important in him achieving his goals in the past. And so that's how I picked where I, how far back I went. Um, in Slytherin Black, which is on... But it is on Evil Author Day. Um, in that case, I was trying to come up with a reason why I did not want Sirius to go back to before James and Lily died because I felt like that ne that needed to be because I wanted Sirius to get Harry from the Dursleys and raise him. So that was the main thing I was trying to accomplish. And so in that case, when I decided where am I going to go, I was trying to. I picked a time travel mechanism that set, you know, I set, I set rules for the time travel and the rules were basically um, that he couldn't go back into his own childhood. Um, and there were a few other things. And then there had to be, there was some arithmancy. I don't know how you pronounce that word, but we're going to go with arithmancy. There were some arithmancy calculations that could be done that he had to go back multiples of the number of years he had been behind the and so once I'd kind of set up my time travel rules, that determined when in Harry's childhood he was going to land, which was when Harry was three, almost four. Um, so, and if you haven't read Slytherin Black, that's all the how he, the time travel is in the first chapter. So I, I haven't really spoiled anything for you. But so that's, you know, I was trying to, I, I knew where I, what I wanted to accomplish and I knew I didn't want James and Lily alive. I didn't want Harry older than say six. Um, and and that and then I tried to figure out figure out a time travel mechanism that worked and that put him back in time when Harry was three. So I have a couple of big time travels. Um, yes, you do. I picked the time travel spot for Darkly Loyal um, based on what I needed, how how much power I needed Harry to have when he landed. And I, I do mean political and social power, not magical power. Um, and so I made it so that he used a ritual circle um, that belonged to the black family that he would not have been able to master and use if he were not Blackmore, the, the, the Earl of Blackmore. So, which meant that he could not travel back a single moment before he could legally, magically claim to be the Earl of Blackmore. So he had to come back after Sirius Black was dead. Which was a hard decision because I really do enjoy saving Sirius Black most of the time, but he would have been in the way <laughs> of their murder spree. That's <laughs> and sometimes you have to make those sacrifices to make your your personal that your the things your id really likes sometimes don't fit 
in every story. And sometimes that's, that can be a bitter pill to swallow, but you know, it's, it's in, yeah, it can be harsh. It unleash your demons. I had a couple of goals. Tony did not need to experience what happened in the Middle East to be Iron Man. He was going to be traveling back in time as Iron Man. He didn't need that. What he needed was a leg up over um, um, Obadiah Stane. And I didn't want, and I felt like if it were me, there is no fucking way I would have picked a moment in time to go back where I had a, shrap, a chest full of shrapnel. No. So Tony's not going to make that decision. So he's not, he's going to land himself in a place where he has room to um, maneuver and hopefully stop a lot of what Obadiah Stane has done. But he can't go back too far because the further he went back, the harder it would be to control in any single way the ripples of his actions. And he quickly learned that those ripples were beyond his control anyway. And there were some things that he could not prevent and he also chose to go back in time to before bruce banner became the hulk because he wanted to save his science bro and he tried and it didn't work and i think that's a realistic thing <laughs> with time travel is sometimes things don't work out the way you want and um and it is the further back you go the more you know about the future the less the less impact the less of the future there's going to be um the more you know kind of like erases some things so there actually is a quote about that, and I can't think of what it is. Um, but Tony also wouldn't have gone back where he wouldn't have had the power to influence the things he needed changed. Um, so why right. would he go back to his own childhood? Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it's, it really is a matter of what you want to accomplish. And a lot of times people don't go back super far because it's hard to manage the ripples of what realistically would change from a going way back in time travel um, i mean he could have gone back to the point where he could have at least saved his mother perhaps saved both of his parents but that would have put him in a situation where he was no longer in control of his money his destiny his i mean he wasn't he, he was still in school when his parents were killed but it also needs to be pointed out that Tony did not travel back in time for himself. He traveled back in time to prevent the snap. So he had to make a decision that served the universe, not one that served Tony Stark. So you have to ask yourself, why is your character traveling in, back in time? What are their goals? And how is the best way to meet those goals? Because those are the decisions that your character has to make. Unless they're being made to travel against their will, like what happened in that old Black Magic. Right. And that is a mechanism you can use to put your character where you want them. Because sometimes you would go like, um, like, let's say you're going to have Styles time travel or Peter or Derek or literally anybody. And you put them after the hail fire. Well, the audience is going to go, why didn't you have them go before the hail fire and save the, if they're choosing their own arrival point, that can be a question that just lingers, which one of the ways you can deal with that is, um, is you have somebody else initiate the time travel. The nematon, so, they don't like so they don't choose. The nematon does it or some magical person does it or or there's limits. You put a, an arbitrary limit like you can't travel back more than 10 years. Or, or the pixies um, and Derek's eyebrows. The pixies and Derek's eyebrows did it. Um, so if you, if you don't want your character to seem like, you know, like it seems like this character would go back, like Styles would go back and try to save the Hales, but you don't actually want that for your story. 
then you make the decision, make it be that your character isn't the one deciding. Well, you, would, you, I, it would be kind of interesting in Harry Potter is if, like, say, for instance, you got your two characters traveling back in time. So knowing what Chris writes, that's probably going to be Harry and Draco. So they have this plan. They've picked their spot. They got their ritual down. They got all these things going on. They do their ritual. And Magic's like, you know what? I'm going to let you boys do this, but I'm going to put you right here. Right. <laughs> and they wake up wherever the fuck you want them to wake up, right? And it's just like, well, we were going to go back to our fifth year because we had plans and Umbridge was going to be spider food and now we're third years. <laughs> So you can you can come up with their wherever you want your characters to be. If you can't come up with a good a logical reason for them to be there, just talk to us. We can come up with a reason, a way, or at least a way. Like you know, um, like if I were writing Teen Wolf and I wanted Styles to be in a place that Styles wouldn't go, I would just have the Nemeton interrupt it. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and fuel this time travel, but you're going back where I want you to go. And the other thing you have to consider with time travel when you're sending them back, um. Is ritual interruptus? Ritual interruptus <laughs> is a perfect title. Write that down, Chris. <laughs> There's a charm for that. Um, <laughs> uh, but is how old do you want your character? Is your character traveling? Is your character traveling back to their own body, like their younger self, or it, are these older characters traveling back, and then the younger versions of themselves and the older versions coexist? Um, because now in, in Slytherin Black, actually in Slytherin Black and Leomoto, I have sort of a soul fusion kind of thing happening. The consciousness mm -hmm. of the older, actually in the case of Leomoto, it's a completely different person. Basically Severus's consciousness, um, inhabits, you know, of like a, a, a dead ancestor, not like dead, dead, like mostly dead. <laughs> He's only been dead for a couple of seconds when Severus's consciousness and get slammed into his body but so it's actually too different he, he's inhabiting a completely different body um he's not inhabiting his younger self that's how he's yeah slightly alive mostly dead is yeah. slightly alive he needed a miracle pill he got one um boy so, did he so what you you, you have to that's that is actually a big decision factor right because you can go way further back and fuck stuff up if you're not having them go into their own body if their actual physical form is being transported through time. Um, so if Harry and Draco go back to the Marauders era, that's a completely different kettle of fish in terms of raising the wizarding world than Harry and Draco going back to their younger selves. There's actually a really interesting fic where Harry um, ends up in an alternate universe back in time. Um, his world went to shit and... Um, he flipped around to a couple of different dimensions and he ends up in one where um, one of the things that Ron helped him do before Ron died in his original universe was to figure out how Harry could pretend to be a high elf. So when he, cause it would give him protection in the magical world. So when he landed in this alternate universe and back in time, it was in the seventies, his parents were still in Hogwarts it's called a long journey maybe the author has gray in the title but it's not gray wolf 
believe. Willow? Willow's typing. Journey. Is it Journey's End, maybe? Journey, Journey to, to a, a New, new Start, start by Wolf. Wolf Walker. Okay. Um, so Harry takes the potion and he's um he's trying to just live his life, but Dumbledore is is obsessed with him the moment he sees him. Because he doesn't understand why this this young boy isn't in school. He's obviously magical. And he doesn't recognize yet that Harry is not human anymore. Um, and he's actually quite a, a lot older. Um, and, and eventually the high elves kind of take notice of Harry. And they come visit and help him complete the transition into a high elf. Um, and it's a really fascinating journey for Harry as a character. It's a genfic. Um, so it's it just it's he starts to shift and change how magic is is thought of in this new world and through his relationships with the high elves and um with that with the house elves that he rescues um he he heals and it's it's, it's interesting it's an interesting take on time travel i don't normally read dimensional time travel um there's another one by bob men where harry ends up at a um in a universe uh well, what I write and what I read are two entirely different things, Lady Holder. I thought you knew that by now. <laughs> I am very picky. <laughs> and a lot of times, like something that I would trust myself to write, and this is going to sound ugly, and I'm, but I have triggers. So stuff that I would trust myself to write, I would not trust somebody else to write. Like if I read the warnings for Ties That Bind on somebody else's fic, I wouldn't read it. Except for Jilly. I read Jilly's. I read Lady Holders, but Lady Holders are not BDSM. Um, you know what I'm saying? As I, there are concepts that I would be comfortable exploring and reading from authors that I know that I would not want to read from strangers because you know, it's, it's my job as a reader and as a writer to guard my own mental health. Yeah, I, I I want to be warned. I expect to be warned. And if I'm not warned, the author gets on a list that, uh, of, of people that I will never read again ever. For any single reason. Um, yeah. When you discover that an author thinks warnings are for fictional characters. Not for people. Um, you go. Right? Okay, I can't trust you. Um, Lady Holder wrote a time travel story. Where Harry and Draco go back. Like in their adult bodies. They don't. It's not their consciousness traveling. It's them. And they are sent back to the time of King Arthur. Um, and. I think what's important when you're making your decision about how far back to send your characters and which method of time travel and it's called restoration. Um, thank you. I, 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 is it, um, is it a King Arthur crossover or a Merlin crossover? It's a King Arthur. K King Arthur. The movie? King Arthur. The movie? Yeah. Okay. yeah. The movie. Um, and when it comes to, how you make your decision is you want to be sure whatever your aim is that you've put your character in the right time period and you've utilized a time travel method that allow gives them the power and agency to accomplish your story's goals. Um, which like agency is super important. Like Kira mentioned about, um, you know, not being able to say serious in the, in the story because Harry needed to be old enough to be the Earl of Blackmore, which means Sirius had to be dead. So, you know, that's really important. You don't, you know, if, if you really want Harry to be able to accomplish a lot of stuff, that's going to be harder if he's five. If he's, if he's a 30-year-old man, the five-year-old's body. 
Now I I have frustrating read, ex fuck experience. Now I have <laughs> I have read some time travel stories where adult Harry does wind up in a young body and he gets himself out of the Dursleys and that's a very different kind of story than like what you know Chris said about wanting to raise the Wizarding World. Um, if you want Harry to be able to raise the Wizarding World, he needs to be old enough to accomplish that. Which you know sixteen ish I think is a good and also considering you know. I do know you and I do know your preferences. 16 is the age of consent in Britain. <laughs> and when you have two adult characters who are used to having sex, putting them back into, you know, prepubescent bodies is creepy. It's mean and mean. It is mean. Yeah. Cause then you have to have things like, you know, I, at some point it's going to be painful that we're not happy with it. You know, that we're too young to have sex but right now I'm not even interested you know because you you kind of have to put that out there so that you don't anyway it's just it's a yeah. weird thing it's just a, it's a weird thing when you get grown-ass adults and little teeny tiny bodies so um, but even with an aging potion I, I I think that it's weird because it's like okay so you age your characters up for a few hours so they can fuck and then they go back to their 13 year old body come on that's gross well, it's better than it's like because we know the aging potion isn't permanent. Yeah, it's it's way better than the alternative is that they don't age themselves up. So yeah, yeah. it's gross. So, but yeah, considering Chris's, um, I still have that uh, that that alpha read by the way, where she went through my whole story and said you can put a blowjob here, and here, blowjob here, and here, and here. This would be a great spot for a sex scene. I'm pretty sure it's that alpha read from Chris. It's the reason why whenever I'm struggling with word count that one of the bitches says, well, you could put a blowjob in. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> it probably is. You get an extra thousand words, blowjob. <laughs> it is. Oh, see, That's says, like special activity it. incoming, blowjob. <laughs> there you go. I'm just saying. Just saying. So, yeah, I think Time travel, uh, we've talked before, time travel has become a trope that I intensely just, int I used to intensely dislike, and now I love it. Um, but it all depends upon the fandom that it's done in, and it depends upon, um, it depends on how it's done. There's not any, like, weird, to me, we're, weird elements to me that wind up being creepy, like adults and children's bodies. Like, children, children, like... I mean, you kind of can make it work, but I mean, actually, the funny thing is I'm doing that. I'm actually writing something where you've got adults in children's bodies. It is a cracky concept, though. I will say that. But it actually affects this them. And they talk about your team, right? <laughs> it is. It is. Um, but they actually talk about. Dad. How... <laughs> Dad, um, we think you're going to be president. Boy, just be quiet. Um, <laughs> We're talking about your planks now. <laughs> So in that, but in that, they actually talk about that they they have a struggle with how mature their brains aren't developed enough really to process things the way their adult memories tell them they should. And so sometimes they really, even though they're adults in kids' bodies, that they act more like children, even though at sometimes they kind of have like this dissonance about it because they've got kid physiology and adult memories. Um, and I also have the ancients kind of helping a little bit with kind of muting their adult memories a bit so that they can stay on task, but also still be children. So, um, dad, we don't think you should date this woman. I don't think she's going to look good on your background check. 
I have I'm work, I have I have one episode almost finished and I di- I'm doing two episodes of Little League's Little League's Year Team for Trope Bingo. Only two of them really fit, but I'm doing Secret Sibling and Time Travel for two of the episodes. So, um, <laughs> but in general, like I just, those of you who aren't aware of what it is, if you weren't in the podcast that that originally came from, Jilly has this idea that John, Rodney, Matt, David, Tony, and Jack. And Tony and Jack all travel back in time and they end up in little bodies like they're five years old. Well, they're no, they're not all the same age, but they're all under 10. Tony's uh, Tony's the Tony and Matt are twins and they're eight and David is 10 and John is 11. So, yeah. So Patrick Shepard put three children to, or two children to bed. Um, and then the next day woke up to a little league seer team. Yeah. Well, he gets a call saying one of the son, this one of the son that it was been missing for eight years had been found, and all of a sudden all of his kids are acting weird. They're demanding, tr- you know, training and survival evasion, um, resistance and escape, uh, which is the seer thing. Anyway, Rod, they you know they get in touch. They have their weird pen pal from Canada. They want to come live with them. Um, <laughs> and no one can convince them that they can't steal a kid from Canada. No. So, uh, yeah, I started working on that for Trope Bingo, but it does, I kind of like broke one of my own rules in my head. of like, I don't generally put adult consciousness into kid bodies, but Mm -hmm. I am trying to kind of, for me, address some of the suspension of disbelief around that because, um, their brains just, you know, the bio, they're biologically, I have it. They're not, not quite, uh, but you can play some of it off as the fact that they're, that they're ancient. And the yeah. ancients do have more brain power because one of the reasons why Jack O'Neill almost dies when he gets the ancient download is his brain isn't developed enough to take it. He's not ancient enough, but right. I, I think they would be ancient enough after the time travel. Yeah, so the ancients are helping with 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 the issues that they're experiencing. But, you know, if you have a mechanism like that for... Because um, I don't know how actually biologically a kid's brain could handle um, an adult... An adult oh, kids brains are very fluid and um right, they learn quickly they learn easily but can you imagine the like the for stars the decision making skills are going to be very questionable but um the other issue is that like your emotions are just so different right so can you imagine that um you're like five and you've got an adult brain and you stub your toe and you just want to sit down and cry and you're like okay i, I, I need like a time out i'll be back <laughs> Because you don't want to cry because you're an adult, right? But right. your fucking toe is on fire and it's ridiculous. And, and you can't cuss like you want to because you'll get in trouble, get grounded. So you're you're giving yourself a time out in the closet in the bedroom so you can cry. <laughs> it's like, why do I feel like crying? I don't know. I feel like it's, and I would think that'd be the big struggle is like, you know, kids wrestle with and their emotions more. They're, they're more expressive emotionally than adults are. You learn how to kind of compartmentalize that stuff. <laughs> and what if, you know, just all of a sudden, like these four adults just suddenly feel like they want to, like every little thing sets them off. And they're like, it challenges their notions, probably their notions of themselves a little bit. So, yeah, you need a nap, right? What happens when they get tired? And I, I actually, I need to put, I had, now I need to put that line. It's like Matt and Matt and Alex are both getting a little, little fussy as it were and and john looks at them and goes i think you two need a nap <laughs> and they're like damn it we do need a nap <laughs> and then at first they resist that's then- like wait 
So, so my, so I got, I got picture Patrick Shepard in therapy. So, my kids have adopted a child from Canada. Yeah, they did, um, and they give themselves times out, timeouts, and they, they've also established their own nap time ritual. That <sighs> I stopped having to fight them about naps. They just do it, and actually, they could be like, they could be like the first time John says it, as they kind of go, "Are you trying to send me to bed?" And then Alex goes. You know what? That's not a bad idea. When I was an adult, when I was an adult, I really liked naps. I think I'm going to go ahead and go with this. <laughs> we got hoes on the nap front. Totally. We're in, so, we're in prime. We're in prime napping years. We need to take advantage of this. We all got hosed on the nap front. This is just a truism: is you don't want them when you're forced to have them, but then you become an adult and you're not supposed to have naps anymore. At least not in this country. I really envy the countries that have afternoon naps. Um. I think we need a siesta. Let's fuck it. We totally do. Um, do they nap during siestas or is that more like snack time? Because I am actually on board with either. I, I'm on board with a snack and a nap. I, I'm, all, <laughs> I'm all for like, you know, can a graham cracker and a nap. Can, can we have a nap time and a tea time? It's amazing that we stole everybody's languages, but we didn't steal their awesome stuff like siestas and tea time. Right. I'm all for those things. But so, you know, I've tried to kind of mitigate a little bit the, I don't want to just have fully functional adults in children's bodies. So I am writing in, and it comes across a lot like humor, but I am writing in some um, struggles they have with their little bodies. It's like, uh, I'm so uncoordinated. <laughs> I'm sure they probably have a problem with nightmares too, um, because the adult brain um, processes fear and stress differently than the, the, than a child's brain would. So they're going to have a lot of psychological leakage, basically. Right. Well, the impetus for the time travel, well, the impetus for why the ancients interceded was they knew they needed the four shepherds. They needed four shepherd kids to all be survived to go back in time. And so when they, when, it, when Tony started, when they, Ray started feeding on, on Tony is when they stepped in. So Tony's last memory of his life is being fed on by a race. Which, wow, not great. Which is an experience John has had too. So, yeah. But so I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of look somewhat realistically, even though sometimes it comes across more as humor, because I'm trying to make this a lighthearted series um, that they are struggling with a little bit with being adults in, in children's bodies, which is not something, like I said, that I would normally do in, in travel. So I'm travel. I was taking, super seriously is because it just what for me just raises a host of problems and also, a level of frustrating you have to deal with like how um, how much do i show of their of their new childhood um before i can dig into the meat of what i'm going to accomplish right although the little league little league seer team part of it you know the meat of it actually i think is for that for that portion of it um which i have several episodes planned for that part of it is about the entertainment of them traumatizing their father with dad we need a shooting range in the backyard no you do not <laughs> how about archery can we have archery <laughs> we would like we would like taekwondo lessons is krav maga an option <laughs> <laughs> where am i you gonna not fighting you're not you're not learning israeli street fighting this is virginia in the 80s where do you think <laughs> i'm gonna get you a krav maga teacher is that how you say that? Because that's how I think it's said, but I'm not sure. 
Yes, that okay. is how it's said. Krav Maga. I love that when I have to get something right. Yeah, but Patrick Shepard's you know, in the Navy at this point. Or maybe, I don't know, I don't know what you're writing for in there. Um, he just can't contact Masad and say, hey, can you send somebody over to teach my kids? Because <laughs> they want to learn Krav Maga. He's going to hire some retired, he's going to hire a retired Marine to try to keep them occupied. He's going to go, we're going to, the Marine goes to his office and goes, we're gonna, I'm going to need some like help. Um, they're running me ragged. And when did they all learn to shoot that well? <laughs> I told them they couldn't have a firing range. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. Sorry. So anyway, so I, I hope that answered the question about the time travel. Um, just don't 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 let your don't let your time travel handicap your story is i think the key thing and i I've, I've seen people put themselves in a, in a disadvantage in the time travel choices that they've made so and sometimes they want to put that disadvantage on their character and inadvertently put it on themselves cuz you don't want your character like to be able to accomplish everything in like 5 minutes cuz you're going to have a 2 minute you going to have a 2000 word chapter i mean story but unless you just want a 2000 word story but, you know, don't confuse ca handicapping your character with making your own life difficult, is what I would say. And and don't give your character overwhelming obstacles either, because you don't want to be trying to drag your character out of, out of their obstacles um, for 50,000 words. Some obs you want some, it's a balance, right? You want some obstacles because you need that conflict for it to pull a novel length story along. But oh, and I speak from experience. Do not travel back to fourth year. It's a mistake. And if you travel back to third year, skip the fourth year. It's a mistake. Mistakes were made. Fourth year sucks. Stupid, uh, a stupid tournament. There's a lot. I mean, unless you're just going to undo the tournament, prevent it from happening. Yeah, but then what do you do? You have the whole year of fourth year. Just, I mean... Yeah. Well, but that that's falling into the trap that you have to write a whole year of a, in order to write a Harry Potter story. True. Um, Which I honestly, the only one I've ever done where I did a whole year would be Dr. Loyal. But they had a lot of people to kill. <laughs> so that was going to take time. Yeah, that, that just took a um, lot of time. But you, you could, you could, you could, you can set up the character, write your time travel and set up the character um, to make it really clear how things are going to be changed without actually writing everything that changes. You don't have to write all the ripples. That, which is how some people are able to write a 10,000 word time travel story, which generally is not something that I would read. But every once in a while, somebody recommends a shorter time travel story. And I'm like, yeah, that was on point. Um, because usually I think you need more time to to make the time travel, why they're time traveling and what they're accomplishing in the past. But sometimes people just, just jump in like gangbusters and they make it really clear. It's really obvious from the changes that happen in that 10,000 words, what the ripples are going to be. It's really obvious that you're erasing, you know, everything that happens in Harry Potter canon. So, Although it would be funny is if Harry and Draco meant to travel back to like, I don't know, fifth year and end up in their fourth year and they're pissed about it. And Harry's going to be like, I am not participating in this. And the thing is, adult Harry might know how to get out of the tournament. True. 
I still, I still, it's my head cannon that it's the person who put the paper in who's actually on the hook, and that effectively Harry was a proxy until he can participate in the first task, and once he participated in the first task, he was now committed to the tournament. So all he has to do is say, "I refuse to be a proxy for whoever put my name in the thing." I decline because the magic has to be attached to a person, not a name, right? So he says, no, I refuse to do it. And the person who's at risk of losing their magic is now Barty Crouch Jr. I'll bet you he's going to come forward and participate in that tournament. <laughs> Good Harry's going to be like, no, Dumbledore can try to manipulate him. Harry, somebody's going to lose he their might magic. Not even, he might not even know that it, he is responsible until it's too late. Because it isn't like he actually has Moody's knowledge. And he's batshit as well. Barty Crouch wouldn't know, but they could talk about it, right? So adult Harry in, in younger Harry knows that Barty Crouch is actually the person on the hook until Harry participates in the first task. But um, so Harry says, no, I read the rules. And the person who put my name in is the per I'm telling you, I didn't do it. And the person who put my name in is the person who's actually committed to this tournament. Um, and so I refused to participate. And Dumbledore could go, well, you're right, and try to guilt him and say, do you really want somebody else to lose their magic because you wouldn't participate in this tournament? And Harry's like, how is and that I, my problem? I'll be like, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. They're clearly trying to get me killed, so I'm totally fine with it. And then Barty Crouch is like, okay, fine, I will participate in this tournament. <laughs> because he's heard it. He's heard Dumbledore talking about it. About how he's going to lose his magic if he doesn't participate, and that's crack, y'all. <laughs> well, it is crack, but he could. There, I think there are ways you could take that seriously, but I would write it as cracky. Um, but he could be trying to do things to make Harry participate, like give him, you know, put him un under compulsion or whatever. And Harry's just—he's—he's he's an adult wizard. He's not having any of that. So none of it succeeds. First day of the tournament comes around, and what everybody thinks is Moody shows up to fight a dragon. <laughs> Because he can't risk losing his magic. And then afterwards, he has to explain why he entered Harry into that freaking tournament. Which realistically would expose the polyjuice situation. Yeah. You know? But honestly, at that point, I think that another realistic ripple would be that Barty Crouch Jr. would try to kill the shit out of Harry Potter. I think he would. He'd be furious, and he's and, and and he's nuts anyway. You have to keep that in mind. So I think that he would lose his shit. At that point, he has nothing left to lose because he's already failed. I mean, he might as well take that little tosser out with him. <laughs> just, just saying. Might as well. I mean, which I think is realistic that he would if Harry's if Harry's going to expose everything because he bothered to read the tournament rules. Barty's going to be like, you know what? We don't need you. I'm going to do my best to kill you. In fact, I'm not even sure it would actually get to the actual part where Barty Crouch fight, fights the dragon. The first time he realizes that he can't compel Harry to, comp to compete in the thing, he's going to lose his shit. He tries to put that imperious on Harry for real and it doesn't work. Then there's poor little Harry Potter having to duel a dark wizard again in Harry and Hogwarts. Right? <laughs> again. Again. In the background, the twins have pulled out a parchment. <laughs> that didn't take long at all. <laughs> Who had day 28? <laughs> <laughs> Flitwick was the poll. 
But no, I mean, you can have fun with time travel, obviously, or you can have it can do very serious, um, angsty time travel. But it, it all speaks to what kind of story you want to tell. Random Death Eater, absolutely. Um, sometimes you just literally need a random Death Eater. But I honestly had a fantastic time writing Darkly Loyal. I remember. It was just a whole lot of fun. I got to write filthy sex. I got to kill people, fictional people. <laughs> a lot. A lot. And Dark, I had a, I, I had I, a body count. <laughs> and Dark, I actually think that sounds like a great um, idea. Do you, um, can I read that on air? Okay. Dark's idea is the trope where Harry being in the tournament makes him a legal adult because the ministry makes him complete, which is tantamount to emancipating, makes him compete, which is tantamount to emancipating him. So it's possible I plotted a novella where that trope is subverted by way of Harry being a minor and his legal guardian being legally responsible for him in terms of signing contracts on his behalf. And long story short, Sirius Black turns up to the first task and no one can do anything about it because it's international and the champions have diplomatic immunity. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> if I wasn't boycotting Harry Potter, I'd read that so hard. <laughs> so, so Dark plotted that during our novellas podcast. I feel so proud. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. You just imagine uh, Fudge would stroke out. Fudge would literally stroke out. That'd be so great. <laughs> Waving his hat. <laughs> How you breathing over there? Oh, okay. I mean, I've used my inhaler, I think, three times during the podcast. and <laughs> But I've only had to blow my nose once, which is a real improvement. Because <laughs> I don't know what it is, but my sinuses have just been wackadoo with all this smoke in the air but yeah so i think that that is um all the questions that wouldn't be an entire podcast on their own let me make sure um yeah because we have a couple older questions from back the last time we did a podcast um mm -hmm. that i think are much longer topics yeah uh, that sucks chris Ugh. Ugh. I'm going, I will tell you, I'm going through eye drops, like, like mad, like, you know. My doctor um, gave me some ones, gave me some eye drops that have omega-3s in them. I have some of those, actually. I do use them. I try not to use them as much. I use them, like, before I go to bed and stuff. Um, they're I do really them, expensive. They're they are. thick. They're very soothing. Very. Um, they are thick. Uh, I agree. Um and, but they're like $15 to $18 a box, depending upon where I go. I think I can get them at Walmart yeah. for $15. But um, I use, because I'm using so many eye drops that I can only use the preservative-free stuff. Because the more eye drops you use, the more um, you don't want to use to have preservatives if you're using them all the time. So mm -hmm. I'm going through probably 10 of those single-use vials a day. Not of the wow. only ones. I couldn't afford that. But I get the, oh, God. the big box of the plain tears from from Costco. So, I mean, that's still expensive. It's, it's, it's expensive on the eyedrop front, but I don't care. Jeez, Chris. Is that something that will get better? This is probably not content for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So I want to thank you guys for joining us and having questions. I hope that you learned something and it was entertaining. And um, I'm sorry if I hurt any feelings with the whole Bob thing. I didn't mean to. 
hurt um, my feelings. I'm sorry. I'm not actually of the opinion that Tony Stark is dead. Fuck all that. So, <laughs> y'all know how I feel about Endgame. I wrote a whole story about it. Well, no, it was actually about. It's about uh, Infinity Wars. Yeah, it was, but same difference. Um, you you prevented Endgame. <laughs> I did, I did, I did. So, uh, you guys have a fantastic weekend, and we shall catch you later. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. Thank you.